Corona coating hits your thighs. Major cheese being older, killing your man. Slim chance he's going to the boulevard. You believe it, it's true somewhere there's a landlord left until he wipes his pants. No one dreams of being a doctor, a lawyer, or anything. They dream of dealing on the boulevard. Give me your hungry, tired, your poor thumb. That's what your statue of bigotry says. Your poor little masses, let's go club to death. Get it over with, then dump them on the boulevard. It's a bright night, there's an opera in Lincoln Center. Movie stars arrive by limousine. The Klieg lights shoot out over the Manhattan skyline. But the lights out on the main streets. Small kid stands by Lincoln Tunnel. Selling plastic roses for a buck. Traffic's backed up to 39th Street. The TV whores are calling the cops out for a Back at the Wilson, they just sit there dreaming. Found a book on magic in a garbage can Looks at the pictures, looks up at the cracked ceiling By the count of three, I hope I disappear And fly by your way From the dirty boulevard, gonna fly From the dirty boulevard, fly away From the dirty boulevard, I'm gonna fly Fly, fly And welcome to the Weekly Review. It is Friday, November 27th, 2015, and there's a lot of news. There's always a lot of news. So I'm going to go right into the 
stories, a few stories of what we can get to that happened this past week. And there's just word of a shooting that happened uh, outside of Planned Parenthood in Colorado Springs. So we'll be talking about that a little bit as well. There's also uh, mass protests in Chicago and Minneapolis uh, against police brutality. And protesters were shot in Minneapolis. So we'll be talking about that as well. And we'll also be talking to Diamond Dave, who is the co-host of the Common Thread Collective here at Mutiny Radio. And there's a protest happening outside of the White House in D.C. to free Leonard Peltier. Uh, among plenty of other stories, uh, Nestle, a company that one would think could not do any worse. Every time I read about Nestle, they're doing something shittier either to the environment or to their workers or to the consumers. And it's got some more news about why they're a bad company and you shouldn't buy any of their products. Also... Uh, seizures done by the uh, police, by law enforcement, have exceeded uh, burglaries. So that's something else to talk about. Also, perhaps the origins of Thanksgiving, which a lot of us already know, but there's also an article about that we can get into. First, I'm just going to talk about uh, Chicago. And this comes from the U.S. News and World Report. And uh, this article is written by Joseph P. Williams. And the title is, After Police Shooting in Chicago, Calls for Emanuel to Resign. And so, uh, I mean, I always have difficulty, not difficulty, and not always, uh, but there's so much to get to and uh, in terms of choosing what, which stories to read. I feel this, this one is uh, important. I guess they're all, they're all important, but this one certainly gets to the heart of the matter. And also holding elected officials accountable, which is super important because a lot of people have been out there, and this is been going on for quite a long time and to hold elected officials responsible I think is a really important thing to do and uh, I commend those calling on Emmanuel to resign okay for nearly two years he was the second most powerful Democrat in Washington a famously uh, confrontational joyously profane White House gatekeeper who traded in his job at as the first black president's right-hand man to run for mayor of Chicago, their shared beloved hometown. Now, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, President Barack Obama's former chief of staff, is facing calls for his resignation amid disturbing questions on the latest and arguably most egregious incident of police use of deadly force against an African-American citizen. Tuesday's release of a graphic video showing a white Chicago cop pumping 16 bullets into a black teenager will likely cast a pall over Obama's push to ease strained relations between police and the black community in cities nationwide, an issue he personally elevated to the national agenda last year. Besides adding the Windy City to the ever-expanding list of places that which have become shorthand for deadly confrontations between police and African Americans, Ferguson, Missouri, Staten Island, New York, Cleveland, Baltimore, the incident isn't a good look for the president. Despite Emmanuel's strained relations with the black community, Obama endorsed him for office during his first campaign in 2011, and Emmanuel surged to office and to re-election in 2015, in part on the black vote. Yet Obama's former top aide is suspected of helping police cover up the death of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald, the newest name in an issue that cuts to the heart of the black community. When Officer Jason Van Dyke shot McDonald on a city street last year as police responded to reports of theft and vandalism in the area, police administrators and city officials said things were knowingly demonstrably false within minutes of the shooting, says Craig Futterman, a Chicago civil rights lawyer who helped break open the case. Uh, 
A leader has to be held to account for the code of silence that continues to exist in the Chicago Police Department. He has to acknowledge it and address it, he says. In a press conference Tuesday with Chicago Superintendent Gary McCarthy, Emanuel announced the city would release a long-sought video of the shooting recorded on a dashboard camera in Van Dyke's police cruiser that night. Both the mayor and the commissioner said they may ex- that they expect protests from an angry black community, but wouldn't tolerate violence. They also stressed that Van Dyke, who was charged with first-degree murder just days earlier, was a lone bad actor. Demonstrators on the streets of downtown Chicago hours later, however, didn't seem to agree. While we know the system has failed, no one can specifically say how, city alderman Roderick Sawyer told ABC7, a local TV station, you cannot change a system by ignoring a system. The grainy nighttime video, which police and city authorities had refused to make public until a judge ordered it released by Thursday, shows McDonald jogging past Van Dyke and other officers, a small knife in his hand. Although McDonald doesn't appear to confront the officers, several of them draw weapons on him. Van Dyke opens the fire within seconds, gunning McDonald down. Although the young man lies motionless on the ground, Van Dyke continues to fire, uh, emptying his 16-round clip. When the gunfire ends, a second officer walks over to McDonald's body and kicks the knife from his hand. Although several officers are on the scene, no one gives first aid to McDonald. Shortly after the shooting, Futterman says, the Chicago police released a statement declaring that McDonald was the aggressor, was under the influence of PCP, and that Van Dyke shot once in self-defense. Days later, however, a police whistleblower came to Futterman and independent investigative journalist Jamie Calvin with a tip. Authorities are withholding a videotape trying to sweep an unjustified shooting under the rug. After a year of legal wrangling with the department amid growing publicity around the shooting, Futterman says a judge ordered the release of the dash cam video from Van Dyke's cruiser, a decision that triggered a series of rapid fire developments in the case. Under pressure, prosecutors who said they'd spent months on the investigation quickly charged Van Dyke with murder. Emmanuel McCarthy met with African-American community leaders and braced the city Uh, for release of a potentially explosive piece of evidence. I believe this is a moment that can build bridges of understanding rather than become a barrier of misunderstanding, Emmanuel said in Wednesday's press conference. I understand that the people will be upset and will want to protest when they see this video. We as a city must rise to this moment. While Van Dyke's attorney insists his client acted in self-defense, Emanuel says the officer will be held accountable for his actions, but Futterman says the buck ultimately stops at Emanuel's desk. The mayor let linger a false narrative McDonald's death didn't compel the police to release the video when reporters asked for it, and neither he nor McCarthy have taken steps to demolish the department's wall of silence. After the shooting, Futterman says, officers destroyed videos of the incident recorded at a nearby fast food restaurant. Ironically, other security videos show them doing this, he says, rounded up and intimidated a group of eyewitnesses into silence and used news reporters to feed disinformation to the public. All the evidence appears to point to it, that a lie was told to the media, Futterman says. No official corrected that lie. 
and there were actions on the part of multiple officers to intimidate witnesses, to destroy evidence, and to lie. On Twitter Wednesday, hashtag ResignRom was trending, and Futterman agrees the mayor himself must answer for keeping people in the dark and letting lies be told on behalf of Chicago police officers to hang in the air. While Futterman doesn't hesitate to call it a cover-up, he stops short of accusing Emmanuel of direct involvement, although it's a fair question to ask what he knew, when he knew it, and what he did to ensure justice in, this ca in the case. The mayor has fallen short in this case, and I think it's up to the voters to decide whether he should continue to lead Chicago, Futterman says, noting Van Dyke is the only one who's clearly being punished, who's clearly been punished. What about all those officers that participated in covering up what happened and intimidating witnesses? That's criminal, Futterman says. Heads need to roll because this uh, has become the practice and culture that's established by leaders like Mayor Emanuel and Superintendent McCarthy. I'm too cynical to say I'm surprised no one's been fired, Futterman says. While the majority of the Chicago police rank and file do a fine job, he adds, the culture at the top protects the minority of officers <coughs> who are out there abusing people. That's fundamentally what needs to change. If that were actually addressed, he added, there is a good chance McDonald would be alive. <coughs> so um, I'm going to be moving along to uh, some more stories uh, dealing with uh, protests that have taken place. Um, and yeah, I don't really have much to add to that. And there has been discussion that, you know, this violence has been happening for a very long time. It's the only thing that's really new is that now there are cameras and now it's being recorded and now it's being shared on social media. So more people are aware of it. And there's also a story, if we have time, that I'll get to about a whistleblowing cop who is, uh, you know, retaliated against. And I think that happens with a lot of whistleblowers, that they're people who do stand up to those end up uh, being punished or threatened. And that's perhaps why we don't hear, uh, or why things maybe don't get done, or people try to get things done and then they're threatened. So something needs to change. Well, this next also goes into protests that are happening, have happened in Chicago. And this is from the Daily Dot, uh, written by Andrew Kautz. <coughs> mm. Um, hundreds block streets in Chicago to protest shooting of Laquan McDonald. And I'm also going to add to that, quite often when protests are reported, there's, uh, they don't quite say exactly how many people are there. It's oftentimes they say less people are there than are actually there. Like sometimes they'll say hundreds when there are thousands. Sometimes they'll say dozens when there are hundreds. <coughs> and again, it's important to check out the media and to see who's doing the reporting, and I get that. You can't be completely accurate with exactly how many people, but oftentimes with the media, if they, and a lot of times they don't even, they don't even acknowledge that the protests are happening, and when they do acknowledge that they're happening, they will just totally downplay it to show as if, to pretend there's a lack of support or to kind of twist the story in a way where there's not that many people there when in fact there was quite a few people there. So I often tend to think perhaps there are more people present for the protest. Also, if anyone's been to protests, one would know that it's not the same amount of people there all the time. Sometimes people show up early. Sometimes people show up late. People come and go. Sometimes people join late. Um, so to get a full number, it's kind of accurate to give a specific number. 
And there's also plenty of people who very well would participate if they were able. Not everyone's able to participate in person, so that's something else to else to think about as well. Um, so to get people out on the streets is, is really important, and it's important to acknowledge when this, this happens. So hundreds gathered on the streets of Chicago on Tuesday night to protest the shooting death of a teenager by a police officer. The impassioned unrest follows the Chicago Police Department's release of a police dash cam video. <coughs> Excuse me. That shows Officer Jason... Van Dyke, 37, shoots 17-year-old Laquan McDonald 16 times during an October 2014 encounter. Van Dyke turned himself in on Tuesday morning. He had been charged with first-degree murder of McDonald and faces up to life in prison. The protests, which were heavily live-streamed on Periscope, disrupted traffic but did not appear to result in overt violence from either demonstrators or police at the time of publication. This article has some photos of the protests as well as some tweets and some videos um, from the protest as well. <clears throat> uh, at 8.30 p.m. Central Time, protesters arrived in front of a police station where they believe police detained three demonstrators, according to reporters on the ground. And then they have some more photographs of the, of the protests. Uh, during a news conference on Tuesday evening, Mayor Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel called on demonstrators to remain calm <laughs> and called Chicago residents to remain resolute and strong during a testing time. We will use this episode in this moment to build bridges that connects us as a city or to build barriers that separate us as a city, Emanuel said, adding, it is fine to be passionate, but it is essential that it remains peaceful. And I think it's just so, I think it's hypocritical uh, very much to to demand peace from people who've been pushed around for a long time. Uh, if you want to tell people to remain peaceful, maybe that should be the uh, law enforcement officers. Uh, perhaps they're the ones who need to be reminded to be peaceful. <sighs> so that's just my perspective. So then we're going to go into a story about um, what's happened in Minneapolis. And there's also protests there as well. Um, there's two stories here I'm going to get to. The first is about um, protests that were happening. Uh, hundreds march um, through Minneapolis following shooting near the 4th uh, Precinct. This is written by Rachel Shazin. Uh, hundreds of protesters began marching around 2 p.m. from the 4th Precinct in to Minneapolis City Hall following a Monday night shooting where three suspects allegedly fired, uh, a crowd, fired into a crowd of Black Lives Matter protesters, injuring five. Uh, Minneapolis City Hall closed for the day around 4.30 p.m. and locked their doors, police said. This building normally closes at 6 p.m. Protesters then gathered in front of the federal courthouse, and they talk about uh, the green and blue line trains were delayed. And as says, a shooting victim, Wesley Martin, 18, joined the march on Tuesday while walking with a cane and his leg bandaged. He insisted nothing could keep him from what he calls the fight for justice. I've been out here ever since it started, all day, every day, he said. On Monday night, M Minneapolis police heard multiple shots fired near the 1400 Morgan Avenue North around 10.40 uh, p.m. Several 911 calls came in reporting that protesters had been shot near the precinct. The suspects then fled the scene. We got to 14th and Morgan, and all you hear is pop, 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 Martin said. My brother got shot in the stomach, and I got shot in the leg. So there's another uh, article that came out uh, that has much more information that I'm going to get to, and that is like five things you need to know um, about the about the shooting. So I'm going to get to that, and that has much more information. And I think a lot of the times with 
um, I'm always pretty careful about where I find the news news sources from, and it's just important to get from like firsthand sources. So this is uh, Minneapolis shooting five fast facts you need to know, and this will at least provide some context for those <coughs> who are unaware of what happened. This comes from the heavy. And this was uh, updated on November 25th. <clears throat> so there's a rally for Jamar Clark, who was a man who was shot while he was handcuffed by police. Uh, five people were shot late Monday night in Minneapolis, where Black Lives Matter and other groups have been gathering for more than a week, demanding action in the shooting death of Jamar Clark. Two suspects were arrested Tuesday afternoon, Minneapolis police said on Twitter. A 23-year-old white male, Alan Lance Scarcella, was arrested in Bloomington. Two other suspects, Daniel Macy, 26, and Nathan Gustafson, 21, later turned themselves into police. All three men are being held without bail on suspicion of assault. A 32-year-old Hispanic male who goes by Saiga Marine uh, in online postings was also, was also arrested on Tuesday but was later released when police determined he was not on, at the scene Monday night. Activists at the scene say the gunmen were white supremacists. The scene is near the Minneapolis Police Department's 4th Precinct in North Minneapolis. Police say the victims suffered serious injuries but were expected to, but are suspected to survive. The shooting was reported at around 10.40 p.m. Officers said they heard a, 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 the sound of multiple shots in the area of 1400 Morgan Avenue North, a block away from the 4th Precinct. Dispatchers then received multiple 911 calls reporting five people had been shot in the area, police said. Here's what we know so far. One, the victims were taken to local hospitals and at least one was in surgery, and they provide uh, photos of the incident and some tweets. Uh, five people at the hashtag, uh, fourth, at the hashtag fourth precinct shutdown protest were shot and suffered non-life-threatening injuries, police told the Associated Press. Two victims were taken to Hennepin County Medical Center by ambulance, and three others were driven by private vehicles to the North Memorial Medical Center, police said. Black Lives Matter says one of the victims was shot in the stomach and was in surgery early Tuesday morning. <coughs> um, um, And then they have some more tweets from folks who were there. Uh, the demonstrators have criticized the police response to Monday night's shooting on Twitter, saying officers staged outside the, of the scene for several hours, um, for several, sorry, for several, staged outside of the scene for several minutes before coming, in, coming to the aid of gunshot victims. They also say officers maced protesters who were filming them. And they provide more links here. Um, to eyewitnesses, as well as videos from the protest and tweets from witnesses. And uh, someone tweets, uh, cops started macing concerned bystanders and being violent, uh, and that was even more tr uh, triggering. Uh, police radio audio recorded from a scanner, they provide a link to that, and they also have a live stream from the scene below. Uh, police said in a statement, dozens of officers responded almost immediately, attending to victims and secured the scene. Additional resources were called in and are actively investigating the shootings, interviewing a multitude of witnesses. The police department is working to identify suspects. The police are asking that anyone with information to please come forward. The Minneapolis Police Department has additional uniformed officers in the area to ensure the safety of all persons. Two, activists say masked white supremacists open fire on them. And someone tweets, suspects are two white males wearing bulletproof vests, uh, hashtag Jamar Clark protesters uh, alleging they were white supremacists. 
Activists who witnessed the shooting are saying that the suspects were white males, possibly wearing ski masks, who opened fire on a crowd of peaceful protesters. A group of white supremacists showed up at the protest, as they have done most nights, Ms. Noor, a spokesperson for Black Lives Matter, told the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Nor told the newspaper the protesters tried to get the group away from the area, and the men then opened fire on about six demonstrators. The shooting occurred in an alley about a block from the 4th pre- Police Precinct, Nora said. And they provide, again, more photos. Uh, there has not been any confirmation that the suspects are white supremacists, but according to KSTP-TV, police sources have confirmed the suspects are believed to be white males wearing bulletproof vests. Uh, I am obviously appalled that white supremacists would open fire on nonviolent peaceful protesters. Nikima Levy-Pounds, president of the Minneapolis chapter of the NAACP, told the Star Tribune. Number three, there were reports of armed white supremacists threatening protesters last week, and they provide a video, an actual video, of these two men. According to City Pages, two men wearing camouflage with masks over their faces came to the protest last Friday night. Protesters said they felt threatened by the armed men. I don't know if this is what protesters were planning, just standing here, said one of the white supremacists said, according to City Pages. It's almost as if they expect one of us to do something. They expect one of us to be in the wreckage of all this. It's boiling. It's going to be happening soon. A video posted by the two men, which can be watched above, they have a link here, uh, was found online by Black Lives Matter Minneapolis. Police said last week they were aware of the threats to pro- of the threat to protesters. The Minneapolis Police Department has received information that a group may attempt to cause a disturbance this evening in front of the police department's 4th Precinct, police spokesman Scott Soroka said in a statement. We are asking gathered demonstrators to be vigilant and report any actions that may seem out of the ordinary. If anyone notices something suspicious, please contact a nearby officer or call 911. A physical description, clothing description, and or vehicle description is helpful. Also, please report any out-of-the-ordinary actions you have observed. After the shooting, the brother of Jamar Clark, Eddie Sutton, issued a statement to the media. Thank you to the community for the incredible support you have shown for our family in this difficult time. We appreciate Black Lives Matter for holding it down and keeping the protests peaceful. But in light of tonight's shootings, the family feels out of imminent concern for the safety of the occupiers. We must get the occupation of the 4th Precinct ended and on to the next step. Activists with the Black Lives Matter movement have said on Twitter that they will not let the shooting scare them away from protesting uh, against the police. Uh, Four, community members began protesting after witnesses said Clark was handcuffed while shot. Jamar Clark, who is unarmed, was shot in the head by a police officer on Sunday, November 15th. He died the next night. Police told the Minneapolis Star Tribune Clark, 24, was, suspend- was suspected in an, uh, an assault and was interfering with emergency workers trying to provide aid to a victim. He was shot during a physical struggle, police said. The police union says Clark was shot after he tried to take a gun from one of the officers' KARE reports. But witnesses say Clark was not resisting arrest and was laying on the ground when he was shot, according to the NAACP. Witnesses have also claimed that Clark was in handcuffs before he was shot. Police deny those claims. Tito Wilson, a witness, was quoted by the NAACP as saying, Clark was just laying there. He was not resisting arrest. Two officers were surrounding the victim on the ground. An officer maneuvered his body around to shield Jamar's Jamar's body, and I heard the shot go off. A family member says Clark was shot in the head execution style, the Star Tribune reports. 
and they provide another video of the aftermath. Uh, every witness account I heard said he was handcuffed. Every witness account put a knee on him and shot him in the head. That's the account I've heard from young people, older people, etc. said Jason Soule, criminal justice chair for the Minneapolis NAACP, told KARE-TV. Protesters have demanded the release of videos that show parts of the shooting, but authorities say they will not release the video until the investigation is concluded. Officials say the investigation could take months to be completed. They say the video is not conclusive and does not show the whole incident. The demonstrator is made up mostly of members of the Black Lives Matter Minneapolis and the local NAACP, along with other community groups, have said they are willing to stay at the precinct as long as it takes to get justice and have their demands met. Five, two officers are being investigated in the Clark shooting. Police said two officers, Mark Ringenberg and Dustin Schwartz, have been placed on paid leave, K-A-R-E, TV reports. The shooting is being investigated by the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, which is part of the State Department of Public Safety. I want to acknowledge that this is a very difficult situation for everyone involved, for members of our community, members of the Minneapolis Police Department and their families, and for the people that are standing here beside me, Minneapolis Police Chief uh, Jenny Harto said last week. We need to know exactly what happened. We need to know the truth. Everyone involved needs that and deserves that. According to the Star Tribune, uh, Ringenberg 30 and Schwartz 28 have both been with the Minneapolis Police Department for 13 months. Both men have been officers for seven years total. The department released personnel, personnel files for both officers. Schwartz uh, last worked uh, for the Richfield, Minnesota Police Department. Uh, Ringenberg was hired after working for three years and eight months with the San Diego, California Police Department and two years and five months with the Maple Grove, Minnesota Police Department. According to federal court documents, Mark Ringenberg was sued for excessive force and false arrest in 2012 while he was a San Diego police officer. He was sued by Fred Clark Jr., a Bergenfield, New Jersey man who was arrested while he was in San Diego in 2010. The lawsuit was dropped by Clark because it was becoming too expensive for him to fight, he told Heavy.com. And they have more links uh, to, the, to the lawsuit and the officers below. And this was uh, written by uh, Tom Cleary. So again, you can find this on heavy.com and then also facebook.com uh, slash weekly rev. So we're going to play some music and then we'll be back with uh, some more news. And uh, we'll hopefully be hearing from Diamond Dave uh, soon.
with us. We know you could have stayed home, just cried and cussed. Mail your guns go off if it's time to bust. Mail their tanks have time to rust. They got the armies turning bullets into gold. They got the hookers turning tricks into code. And every time the police kicks in the dough, an angel gas breaks dips in the O. And even if a D-boy flips in my O, it ain't enough to buy shit anymore. Sleep in the doorway, piss on the floor. Look in the sky, wait for missiles to show. It's finna blow, cause they got the TV, we got the truth. They own the judges and we got the proof. We got hella people, they got helicopters, they got the bombs, and we got the, we got the, we got the So we opened up the show with a live performance of Dirty Boulevard by Lou Reed, and this was just uh, the coup with the guillotine. So going back into the the theme of law enforcement, <sighs> this comes from the Washington Post, and the title of this article I mentioned earlier, and just so we all know, uh, Diamond Dave will be calling back in in about uh, half an hour with a report on the protests that were happening outside the White House today. Um, to free Leonard Peltier. So this comes from the Washington Post, and this was written by Christopher Ingram. And the title, 
law enforcement took more stuff from people than burglars did last year. Ah, asset forfeitures surpass burglaries. And they have a chart here, and the forfeiture goes way, way above the, the burglaries. All right. Here's an interesting factoid about contemporary policing. In 2014, for the first time ever, law enforcement officers took more property from American citizens than burglars did. I wonder what the difference is then. Uh, Martin Armstrong pointed this out at his blog, Armstrong Economics, last week. Officers can take cash and property from people without convicting or even charging them with a crime. Yes, really. Through the highly controversial practice known as civil asset forfeiture. Uh, Last year, according to the Institute for Justice, the Treasury and Justice Departments deposited more than $5 billion into their respective asset forfeiture funds. The same year, the FBI reports that burglary losses topped out at $3.5 billion. Armstrong claims that the police are now taking more assets than the criminals. Again, interesting to look at how we label people. And Okay, uh, but this isn't exactly right. The FBI also tracks property losses from larceny and theft. In addition to, plain, to plain old burglary, if you add up all the property stolen in 2014 from burglary, theft, motor vehicle theft, and other means, you arrive at roughly $12.3 billion, according to the FBI. That's more than double, <laughs> more than double the federal asset forfeiture haul. Um, One other point. Those asset forfeiture deposit amounts are not necessarily the best indicator of a rise in the use of forfeiture. In a given year, one or two high-dollar cases may produce unusually large amounts of money, with a portion going back to victims, thereby telling a noisy story of a year-to-year activity levels, the Institute for Justice explains. A big chunk of the, that 2014 deposit, for instance, was the $1.7 billion Bernie Madoff judgment, most of which flowed back to the victims. For that reason, the net assets of the funds are usually seen as more of a more stable indicator. Those numbers show how much money is left over in the funds each year after the federal government takes care of various obligations, like payments to victims. Since this number can reflect money is taken over multiple calendar years, it's less comparable to the annual burglary statistics. Still, even this more stable indicator hit $4.5 billion in 2014, according to the Institute for Justice, a higher, higher again than the burglary losses that year. One final caveat is that these are only the federal totals that don't reflect how much property is seized by state and local police each year. Reliable data for all 50 states is unavailable, but the Institute of Justice found that the total asset forfeiture Hall for 14 states topped $250 million in 2013. The grand 50-state total would probably be much higher. Still, boil down all the numbers and caveats above, and you will arrive at a simple fact. The United States, in 2014, more cash and property transferred hands via civil asset forfeiture than via burglary. The total value of asset forfeiture uh, was more than one-third of the total value of property stolen by criminals in 2014. That represents something of a sea change in the way police do business, and it's prompting plenty of scrutiny of the practice. (sighs) So, uh, yes, just, I don't have much to add to that. I think it's certainly important, and also just the idea of how we, you know, label criminals and how, you know, we criminalize the poor in this country, and people are often afraid of things being stolen, yet 
there's not a lot of talk about the rich stealing things, whether that's like through price gauging or again through police stealing um, things. Okay, so this next article. Uh, so in Dallas, this comes from the LBGQ, LGBTQ Nation. Uh, Dallas neighborhood on lockdown after 12 anti-gay hate crimes. And this comes on Monday, November 23rd. And this is uh, by Jeffrey Hubbard. A neighborhood in Dallas has been put on police lockdown after a dozen violent hate crimes against gay men and several robberies were reported. The city's Oak Lawn neighborhood has seen a frightening uptick in anti-gay bashings in recent months. Last Thursday, Jeffrey Hubbard, pictured above, and there's a photo of Jeffrey, he didn't write the article, just the, his name is there, uh, became at least the 12th victim in three months of an anti-gay hate crime when he was bashed uh, when he was bashed in his, in the skull with a rock while walking to a friend's house, he sustained a temporal bone fracture that required several stitches to his head. Rally for Change, a local organization, has been demanding increased police presence and better protection in the area for months. Survivors have been beaten with bats, stabbed with box cutters, pistol whipped, and pummeled with fists, the organization said in a statement. In several of these attacks, homophobic language has been used by the assailants. The statement continued, for weeks, DPD has promised an increased presence in the neighborhood. When pushed on the fact that such an increase has been spotty and largely invisible, DPD has, has pointed to officer shortages and has now even suggested that the protection provided by our tax dollars is not enough and that we should pay for expanded patrols by off-duty officers. I'm going to interject here by just saying, instead of perhaps putting the money towards having more officers there, maybe more money should be put towards education so folks don't go around beating other people up. Okay. Uh, in response to the most recent attack, the city is finally taking action. Oak Lawn has been put on a lockdown with police encouraging residents to be cautious and to take care of each other. I think folks should always take care of each other. Additionally, a group of roughly half a dozen officers have also been assigned to the area instead of patrolling a larger beat. On Friday, Mayor Mike Rawlings also went door-to-door -to, -door to help assure residents he is doing his best to address the issue and to let them know Crime Stoppers has increased its reward for information in the attacks from $5,000 to $10,000. So far, there are still no leads yet on suspects in any of the assaults. Hubbard, who is still recovering from his injuries, is encouraging people to be extremely cautious. I'm not saying uh, avoid the streets and lock your doors, he told WFAA-TV, but don't travel alone. And this was from the uh, Dallas Morning News, and again, it's available on uh, the LGBTQ Nation, and there's there's no byline for the author. So, yeah, I guess there's, there's always been violence, and uh, I know, though, with reporting violence is one way of ending violence, so making people more aware that this is happening. Uh, here's something. Uh, okay, back in with the police stuff. A whistleblowing cop accuses police department of retaliation files suit. And this is from NJ.com. Uh, Bedminster, a township police officer who accused a fellow officer of inappropriate behavior, including lying to a judge and targeting minorities, is fighting for his job after what his attorney says has been a series of retali retaliatory action by the department over the last four years, over the past four years. Officer Kyler Pyrog a 16-year-old uh, veteran was initially demoted after going to the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office with his concerns when his superiors failed to act. He has been suspended indefinitely without pay pending his termination following an internal affairs investigation that his attorney says 
was initiated as further retaliation. Pyrog has filed a civil suit in Morris County alleging the township police department violated the Conscientious Employee Protection Act in its retaliatory retaliatory actions against him. He's seeking unspecified damages. Police and police departments are entrusted to protect the well-being and safety of the public, and most of them do it admirably, said Claudia A. Rice, Pryrog's Morristown's-based attorney. But every once in a while, I would say more than that, uh, you have someone who, who steps out of the role and targets people. When that happens, you need, to, you need people to step forward and out of the blue code silence, and out of the blue and out of the blue code of silence to report those instances then to to then target those very people for retaliation undermines what police and police departments are entrusted to do the suit was filed in morris county because the judge his former co-worker allegedly lied to served in somerset superior court benminster township police department officials said in a preliminary notice of disciplinary action that they are seeking to terminate Pyrog because he committed five violations of department's rules and regulations, including remaining stationary in various township parks and businesses for long periods of time without performing any police functions, falsifying his daily blotter, and running radar for long periods of time without making any motor vehicle stops. Attorney Arthur Feebolt, who is representing the township, didn't return a call seeking comment. Four years ago in June and July of 2011, Pyrog, who was a sergeant at at the time and recipient of repeated satisfactory performance reviews told his superiors that officer John Dapkins had lied under oath to a judge to obtain a search warrant. The complaint said, he also told them that Dapkins lied in a police report, the complaint said. Then, Chief W. Patrick Ussery approved Dapkins' initial report, but after reviewing the tape of Dapkins' motor vehicle stop by then, Lieutenant Craig Meyer Ussery told Dapkins to change the report because the video didn't support Dapkins' version of the facts, the complaint said. Ussery approved the second report, but didn't note that the report had been altered, the complaint said. Several days after... Dapkins strip-searched a juvenile who had been stopped by another officer, the complaint said. During the search, Dapkins sniffed the juvenile's underwear and falsely claimed that it smelled like marijuana, the complaint said. Pyrog believed that lying to a judge under oath, altering the report, and strip-searching a minor constituted official misconduct and reported Dapkins to his superiors. The complaint said he also believed Ussery's approval of the altered report without noting it had been changed constituted official misconduct, the complaint said. Following inaction by his superiors, Pyrog took his concerns to the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office, the complaint said. Pyrog also accused Dapkins of targeting minorities in his motor vehicle stops and allegations echoed by other officers, the complaint said. In August 2011, after, hear, after learning that Pyrog had gone to the prosecutor's office with his concerns, the township suspended Pyrog and advised him that he would be the subject of an internal affairs investigation, the complaint said. He was charged with 12 violations and threatened with termination. The prosecutor's office decided not to pursue the allegations through Pyrog, forwarded to the officer, uh, forwarded to the office copies of the original and recreated reports, Race said. On August 31st, 2011, to avoid termination, Pyrog agreed to a three-month suspension without pay, a demotion, and apologizing to Dapkins, the complaint said. Uh, furthermore, 
The township agreed Pyrog wouldn't be sus- subject to any further discipline. But upon Pyrog's return to work, Ussery Us- denied Pyrog any authority over less experienced officers, assigned him undesirable shifts, and placed a GPS in his vehicle. In addition, department officials required him to report to Dapkins, the officer he had originally accused of misconduct. In March 2014, on the final day Ussery worked before retiring, he told Pyrog that as long as he or his successor, Meyer, were in command, he would never be promoted again. Uh, Meyer was named chief in May 2014. Shortly thereafter, Pyrog was denied a promotion in favor of a less qualified candidate. Uh, when a sergeant who was a member of the interview panel voiced his disapproval, Myers opened the, an internal affairs investigation against the sergeant, and he was eventually forced to resign. On August 18th, Pyrog was notified on his suspension. On November 2nd, a disciplinary hearing was held and then adjourned until yet until a yet-to-be-determined date. The township was advised in July 2014 that Pyrog claimed, filed a claim under the Conscientious Employee Protection Act. And I'm sure this is just one of many examples of folks, whistleblowers, you know, speaking up and then being reprimanded. Because uh, I think if people weren't reprimanded, a lot more people would, would uh, speak up. Speaking of speaking up, how about drone operators? Just going right into it. They got, they got a lot more stories to get to, but uh, this one on the theme I try to sometimes I plan it out ahead of time with getting from one story to the next sometimes it flows not quite sure how it will go but this one's coming up so this is from the intercept and this was written by Murtaza Hussein and the the title is former drone operators say they were horrified by cruelty of assassination program U.S. drone operators are inflicting heavy civilian casualties and have developed an institutional culture callous to the death of children and other innocents, four former operators said at a press briefing today in New York. And this was from uh, November 19th. The killings, part of the Obama administration's targeted assassination programs, are aiding terrorist recruitment and thus undermining the program's goal of eliminating such fighters, the veterans added. Drone operators refer to children as fun-sized terrorists and liken killing them to cutting the grass before it grows too long, said one of the operators, Michael Haas, a former senior airman in the Air Force. Uh, Haas also described widespread drug and alcohol abuse, further stating that some operators had flown missions while impaired. <sighs> I always, I oftentimes, I'm just taking a note, moment here uh, to read a trigger warning before the show, as one should do before they read the news. Uh, so interjecting that here, trigger warning. Ugh, it's the news. All right. Getting back, uh, in addition to Haas, the operators are former Air Force Staff Sergeant Brandon Bryant, along with former senior airman uh, Sean Westmoreland and Stephen Lewis. The men have conducted kill missions in many of the major theaters of the post-9-11 war on terror, including Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. We have seen the abuse firsthand, said Bryant, and we are horrified. An Air Force spokesperson did not address the specific allegations, but wrote in an email that the demands placed on on the drone force are tremendous. A great deal of effort is being taken to bring about relief, stabilize the force, and sustain a vital warfighter capability. Airmen are expected to adhere to established standards of behavior. Behavior found to be inconsistent with Air Force core values is appropriately looked into and Uh, And if warranted, disciplinary action is taken. Beyond the press conference, the group also denounced the program yesterday in an interview with The Guardian and in an open letter addressed to President Obama. 
At the press conference, Bryant said the killing of civilians by drone is exacerbating the problem of terrorism. We kill four and create ten militants, Bryant said. If you kill someone's father, uncle, or brother who had nothing to do with anything, their families are going to want revenge. The Obama administration has gone to great lengths to keep details of the drone program secret, but in their statements today, the former operators opened up about the culture that has developed among those responsible for carrying it out. Haas said operators become uh, acculturated to denying the, humi the humanity of the people on their targeting screens. There was a much more detached outlook about who these people were. Uh, we were monitoring, he said. Shooting was something to be lauded and something we should strive for. The deaths of children and other non-combatants in strikes was rationalized by many drone operators, Haas said. As a flight instructor, Haas claimed to have been non-judiciously reprimanded by his superiors for failing a student who had expressed bloodlust uh, and overwhelming eagerness to kill. Haas also described widespread alcohol and drug abuse among the drunk the drone pilots. Drone operators, he said, would frequently get intoxicated using, using bath salts and synthetic marijuana to avoid possible drug testing, and in an effort to, to bend that reality and to try to picture yourself not being there. Haas said that he knew at least half a dozen people in his unit who were using bath salts and that drug use had impaired them during missions. The Obama administration's assassination program has come under increasing scrutiny in recent months. This October, The Intercept published a cache of classified documents leaked by a government whistleblower that showed how the program killed people based on unreliable intelligence, that the vast majority of people killed in a multi-year Afghanistan campaign were not the intended targets, and that the military by default labeled non-targets killed in the campaign as enemies rather than civilians. The operators said that they felt increasing urgency to speak out in the wake of the deadly terrorist attacks in Paris last week. They believe drone assass assassinations have fed the rise of extremist group, the Islamic State, um, which also uh, should be known as Daesh, uh, which has claimed responsibility for the attacks. Uh, Westmoreland said of the drones, in the short term, they're good at killing people, but in the long term, they're not effective. They are 15-year-olds growing up who have not lived a day without drones overhead. But you also have expats who are watching what's going on in their home countries and seeing regularly the violations that are happening there. And that is something that could radicalize them. In their open letter to Obama, the former drone pilots made a similar point writing that during their service they came to the realization that the innocent civilians we were killing only fueled, fueled the feelings of hatred and ignited terrorism and groups like ISIS, going on to describe the, pro the, programs, the program as one of the most devastating and driving forces of terrorism and destabilization around the world. At the press conference today, the pilots echoed these sentiments. It seems like our actions of late have only made the problems worse. The drones are good at killing people, just not the right ones, Bryant said. Have we forgotten our humanity in the pursuit of vengeance and security? <sighs> so, that, uh, I think I've got nothing to 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 add to that and as uh, i read a story last week about how the stock prices of weapons man weapons are are going up and how there's people who rely you know people who their living is based on selling weapons and uh weaponry and uh it needs to be stopped 
That's all there is to it. And going back to the beginning story is really when you know people who are telling the story, the police are telling their, their perspectives. You don't, we don't get to hear from the people who are murdered, so we have to uh, speak up for them and demand justice. Uh, okay. So uh, there's a few more stories here we can get to. There's, as I mentioned, the the story about Nestle and what Nestle has done. Uh, some other uh, story about the the origins of Thanksgiving. Um, I'm going to take a, a break, though, and actually re- read a story that's not super depressing and violent because there are good things that are happening in the world, too. And this comes from the SF Gate, and it's the map where to find free fruit on Bay Area streets. And this is written by Katie Dowd. So not everything is terrible in the world. It's important to remember that. Uh, so this is uh, November 24th. A group called Gorilla Grafters, oh yeah, we read about them uh, a few months ago, has been grafting fruit tree branches to ornamental trees all over San Francisco, but you don't have to wait years to see them bear fruit. All you have to do is look at the falling fruit map at, um, of the Bay Area. The crowdsourced map, and they provide a link, uh, created by the nonprofit Falling Fruit, shows thousands of places around the region where you can find free fruit. The map also mines data from cities which have information from f- about fruit trees on public property. The map lists 9,000 spots in San Francisco alone where you can find fruit, veggies, herbs, and more for free. The database does include some food banks as sources of free food as well as dumpsters that yield damaged but edible food. There are no specific laws banning, I wouldn't say yet, <laughs> thankfully, uh, there are no specific laws banning picking fruit in public spaces, and of course you shouldn't pick anything on private property without the owner's permission first. The map usually indicates if the fruit tree is in someone's yard and whether or not you need permission. As for the gorilla grafters, they hope the, fr- the fruit branches they've grafted onto ornamental trees around the city will start bearing fruit in 2018 to 2019. And it says to see a map in full, click here for sampling of Bay Area's fruit offerings. Check out the gallery above. I'm going to click here to see. So, yeah, if you go to fallingfruit.org, they'll provide a map of where to find the fruit. So I think that's pretty awesome and glad that folks are doing good work like that. And we can uh, find uh, fruit out there. And there's – they have a map from – falling fruit is like map of – they have like around the world. So they've got locations in Africa and South America, Asia, Europe, uh, Australia, and North America as well. So, again, there is some – there are some good things happening and people doing some good work. Uh, So that's super important. So we should be hearing from Diamond Dave very, uh, very shortly. Um, uh, I'll start off with the – I guess we'll go into the Thanksgiving – uh, we'll go into the Thanksgiving history. I think a lot of us know it. I know it's it's been it's been taught incorrectly, as many things have been in in schools across the the country, and even this idea of uh, you know celebrating murder. I mean, it's not celebrating murder. However, looking at the origins of it, uh, it's it's important to talk about why we need to maybe change things up a little bit, especially as it's being uh, Black Friday today, which is uh, big on, you know, big for capitalism and big for spending and this idea of folks camping out overnight. You know, people are camping out overnight to save some money on on products and yet you don't see people necessarily camping out overnight in protests. Some people do, but it seems like it's not, it hasn't caught on as as much as, uh, it's interesting what people's priorities are, I should say. And uh, today's also, you know, buy nothing day. Uh, which is uh, pretty, uh, I think, pretty, a pretty better, much a better way of of looking at it. And there was a meme I saw earlier that uh, I will I will share 
which I think kind of gets gets right to the point. Oh, and there's another article which we may get to talking about how there's always those videos up about people violently attacking one another during Black Friday and how it's really just about rich folks, or not even necessarily rich folks, but just people like shaming poor folks. So the meme says, we saved so much money on Black Friday by simply not buying anything at all. Happy buy nothing day. And yep, that's that's it. Okay, and oh yeah, there's there's a lot more to get to. So uh, we'll do the do start up with Thanksgiving, and then if Dave calls, that'll go right into also just talking about Thanksgiving and uh, rights of of Native Americans and how they are still c- mistreated and have been mistreated in in this country. All right, so this story is from Counterpunch, and it's written by uh, Ashley Nicole McRae and Lawrence Ware. And it came out uh, yesterday, November 26th, Decolonizing the History of Thanksgiving. And uh, there's a photo here uh, with um, folks holding a sign. We did not fingerprint the pilgrims when they arrived in our own land, uh, Native Americans. All right. Uh, when, they, when they arrived in our own, the, it's part of the sign's covered up. We did not fingerprint the pilgrims when they arrived in our own Native America. Okay. It's Thanksgiving once again, that day every year when we are all gluttonous to celebrate the fact that, quote-unquote, pilgrims and Indians had a harmonious meal. At least that's how it has been framed historically. But let's be honest. On the last Thursday of November every year, we celebrate the beginning of a European European invasion that ends with the death or relocation of millions of Native people. While many have tried to redefine the meaning of Thanksgiving into a time wherein we cultivate a sense of gratitude, the undeniable truth is that the blood of Native people stains the genesis of the holiday. The colonial origins of Thanksgiving, or what many Natives often refer to as thanks-killing or thanks-taking, is not something to celebrate. While we cannot pinpoint one specific or original Thanksgiving celebration, President Abraham Lincoln made it a national holiday in 1863 and conceived it as a national day of Thanksgiving. Pilgrims and Indians weren't included in the tradition until 1890. The national mythos surrounding this holiday does not take into consideration the long and violent history of contact between European settlers, in this case, English pilgrims, Puritans, and indigenous populations that already inhabited the land. Oh, we have a call. We got Dave coming in. So we're going to plug him in here. And be with you. All right. Hey, Dave. Okay, uh, Roman. We're, we're camped out here. We're going to circle around our fire. Having spent the day in Washington, D.C., letting, uh, letting the powers that be and letting the people coming through, they were asking for freedom for Leonard Peltier after, uh, after 40 years in prison. The American Indian Movement, Leonard Peltier, Google him. But here we are. They're here uh, in, in, a, in a great campground. It's called the Greenbelt. We're Greenbelt, you're Greenbelt, Maryland. It's a, it's a beautiful wilderness. So we did. And we have, Roland, what I'm going to do is gonna, I have a circle of people here. We're gonna pass the hat around, the with the with the hat, the phone around. We are passing the hat around, and passing the phone around, and letting people know who they are, what brought them here, and where we go from here. The past shakes hands with the future, through the now, right now. Great. Here we be. And here's my sister, uh, uh, Laudak, right here, of the Lakota Nation. Laudak, I'm handing you the phone. Let people know who you are and what it's all about. Hello, um, I would like to thank everybody that listens to this radio show, the Rainbow 
people, I would like to say thank you for the Lakota Rainbow Alliance and everybody, a sincere thank you and sincere prayers going out for Leonard Peltier. And I would like to make an appeal for Rios, our bus, our bus, the starters giving out. We need some help with some uh, brake work. And this is what I'd like to make an appeal for. Thank you. Another loud up. Remie chao tu kongi foye waye. Makoto oya teki hemie. Ita kao biyahao wea. The Tokara Keeper Woman. I am Warrior Woman. Orpila. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Richard Roski. I'm from Wisconsin, one of the Leonard Peltier uh, supporters. Um, we're out here in Washington. We want to ask you all to. Uh, to do your best to contact uh, um, President Obama to uh, sign for clemency, complete pardon, clemency uh, for Leonard Peltier. You could look that up, Leonard Pelt who is LeonardPeltier.com. Find out dot .info. Yeah, who is LeonardPeltier.info. Educate yourself. This is a human rights violation. It's a political prisoner for over 40 years, or this February 6th will be 40 years, 71. He's been, he needs help, uh, he's, he's diabetes, and uh, not only that, it's a, um, it's a, uh, he's a protector of the earth and a protector of the elders, and um, he deserves his freedom. So please, do your best to pass this forward, uh, look at pass it forward. This is the year for, Leonard, for uh, President Obama to sign for that, and it's, his, it's, a, it's our last appeal. He's getting older and he's not feeling well. And he's been in lockdown. So please hear this message. We want to thank you all for listening. I'm going to pass this forward now to another beautiful, wonderful sister supporter. Hello, everybody. Um, out there, this is Feather. Um, we've been working closely with our Lakota brothers and sisters, the grandmothers and the young ones, and uh, gathering here together pooling our resources, and um, yesterday we went to the White House, and we got a pretty early start for organizing so many folks, and and went there and had a prayer circle just outside of the White House, um, and other folks came along and visited and, and, and listened to what we had to say. We had a wonderful speaker, Chante Peltier, Leonard's oldest son, um, and code of prayers, and we all spoke as well as we could about what was going on. Thank you. And we've had a wonderful camp here. We've been uh, feeding one another, having a great time, and we um, have been working together closely. We've made uh, connections. We're working together, and this is like a trial run. We're kind of think of it like a trial run. Yes. And next year, when President Obama leaves office, uh, before that, he has a chance to uh, grant clemency mm. to uh, folks that are in prison. And we're, that's what we're asking for. We're asking for clemency for Leonard Peltier as soon as possible. Right. But... Uh, a prime time would be between after the election and before Obama goes. So we want to do a large encampment at that time here in D.C. 
I see. And, and lots of organizing between now and then to raise funds, to get the word out, to let people know. A lot of people don't know anything about this, and I think if people knew, they would really care about it and help out. Yes. So all you have to do to make a phone call to the White House is to go to the, you know, just jump on the web or get on the, the, um, the White House comment line. And that's open, you know, like regular business hours, Monday through Friday. It's very easy to find that number. I can't find it right this second, but it, you'll easily be able to find it. Okay. Uh, next brother is going to give you that number. Great. Thank you. Hi. My name is Red. I live in Seattle, Washington. And I flew in for this event. And the number is 202-456-456. One, 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 two, oh, two, four, five, six, one, 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 one. It's business hours at the White House, um, business hours. Call him up and say, free Leonard Peltier. And look him up if you don't know who he is. Blessing. Great. Thank you. All right. Here you go. All right. I'm going to haul you over here to the next person. Great. <laughs> here you go. I'm Pepe Washter. My English name is Belva Janice. I am a supporter of Leonard Peltier. I've been doing volunteer work for many years, and it is time. We're asking Obama. We're pleading with Obama. That was our prayer yesterday at the White House. In front of the White House, we prayed. We prayed in our Lakota way, and we asked with a humble heart for freedom for Leonard Peltier. That's my plea. I, as a grandmother, came here asking Obama for freedom for Leonard Peltier. There's a bumper sticker made by the group. It's called, it says, I beg your pardon, Obama, free mm. Leonard Peltier. So, I out there when she had you, oh, he as one peoples, we stood together and made one voice, asking a plea from Obama. And at this time, we had come unprepared, and um, we let Grandfather take care of us. But at this time, we we're going to ask you people out there that are listening, if you could send in any kind of donation so we can make our trip back. We have a busload of 23 people, and seven people in a van and uh, humbly ask you for any type of donations and if you make any donations would you please send it through Western Union it's all along the highways and in the United States and I really appreciate and I want to say thank you all for all your support and continue supporting Leonard Peltier please I want him home with his children his grandchildren he needs to sit down at a table and eat with his family he needs to come out of there and that way is through obama his last administration is our only chance yes our only chance is clemency for leonard peltier so please help us to put this word out and please help us in prayer and please support us so that we can bring leonard peltier home thank you thank you Hello. Hi. Uh, this is Chauncey Peltier. Um, 
I'm a turtle mount. My father's a turtle mount in Chippewa. My mother's a Fort Totten Sioux. Um, I'm Leonard Peltier's eldest son. Director of uh, PeltierArt.com, uh, co-director of International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee at WhoIsLeonardPeltier.info. Uh, Leonard Peltier is one of the longest-held political prisoners in the world. Leonard is one of the biggest rights violation cases in U.S. history. Uh, he's been in prison for 40 years. He's 71 years old and lives in Coleman Act Security in Florida. He, uh, the prison is constantly going into lockdown due to, uh, um, it's a gang violence prison, mm. and they lock them all down. And when Leonard's in lockdown, he is uh, getting fed through the door. Well, Leonard's uh, diabetic, and when he's eating through that door, he's not able to pick and choose what he eats uh, for his diabetes. Yes. So Leonard's uh, health is deteriorating in there. And we're all asking everybody to call and write the White House. Yes. And uh, if you've ever supported Leonard Peltier, uh, now's the time he needs you. Yes. Like I was saying, he's one of the longest held political prisoners, uh, wrongfully convicted of uh, shooting two FBI agents yes. uh, by falsified ballistics, tempered witnesses. They won't even let his uh, defense submit a full defense where they let the uh, DAs submit over a month month or so of uh, uh, falsified uh, ballistics, tempered witnesses. Uh, it just goes on and on. Uh, they're still, matter of fact, they're still violating Leonard's rights today. Uh, as the director of PeltierArt.com, uh, I had some uh, four paintings on display in uh, Tumwater, Washington uh, as Indigenous Rights Month. And uh, I had them up there on display. We had them up there on display, and uh, they were removed. Well, some people complained and uh, asked the governor to remove it. Well, it wasn't there as uh, anything political. It was there as a Native American artist, and yes. which that was uh, removing it was a violation of Leonard's uh, art rights. So I mean, uh, today they are still uh, still violating Leonard's rights. And uh, so that's why I'm asking everybody to uh, join and help us. Joel lives in a Mexican prison, and it's time for freedom for Leonard. Absolutely. Uh, you can go to whoisleonardpeltier.info, yes. and anything you need to know about the case, uh, the trial, any of the, any of the information on the case at all, the history, the, uh, the rights violations, how to do a support group, any, uh, any events coming near your location. Yes. Are coming up uh, petitions. Uh, it's all right there. Who is Leonard Peltier? Info. Yes, and is Leonard. And then uh, we also have uh, PeltierArt.com, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. which is all uh, Leonard Peltier's art. And uh, you can go there and check it out. There's some very beautiful Native American artwork on there by Leonard Peltier. Okay. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, my name is Sopa. I'm one of the organizers for our Boss Rio, and I'd like to just end with a song. Oh, no, we're not over yet? Okay, so it's fine. Okay. All right, well, actually, I'm about to introduce uh, Felipe, one of our other uh, folks who have put a lot of effort into this. Uh, here he is now. Yeah, relatives from the Bay Area. This is Felipe. I've talked to you.
uh, before. Uh, we are on this walk, and there, there are needs that we, we're encountering right now. A vehicle needs some repair, or we need uh, fuel energy for some relatives to get home for this long journey, and we're asking relatives out there to give it some thought, reach down in your heart, and think about how you can help us. Uh, you can send it through Western Union to uh, any Walmart. Thank you. So uh, we're asking folks out there to uh, help us out, and uh, we're also planning a big, big action next year. And hopefully, we can have millions of people at, in D.C. with uh, masses of TPEs and our relatives all standing up and coming here together. I want to say thank you, all you relatives out there listening. We ask that you support. It's the time for giving. Christmas is coming up. It's a good way to support your relatives. It's a share, and it's a good time to share. So. We hope we hear from a lot of you. Thank you very much. We send our love. Thank you. All our relations. Thank you. Uh, my name is Reverend Yamato. I come from the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, the real important resonation uh, voice, the future generation, must be open mind, listen to voice. This is uh, according to uh, future generation's voice to land and drive. Lena Pertia itself is a land and drive between the society, intelligent and uh, land and drive and separate. That's why all original people other side of Babua fence waiting for the future generation to come. Thank you. The wonderful blessing, uh, uh, wonderful Buddha, all my relation to all over the world. Global peace work, global peace work. This globe itself is the altar. Uh, thank you, all my friend. Thank you. Wonderful blessing and a beautiful relationship. Thank you. Uh, my name's Jack. Um, I am from Baltimore. Um, I'm going to believe that uh, the audience is large and that um, the president might even hear this. So I'm going to just be real brief and say that, um, Barack, please free Leonard soon. There are people here that would love for you to show up and make that announcement tonight, tomorrow. Peace. Thank you. Hello, my name is Wolfe Claymore. I come from Rapid City, South Dakota. Uh, we drove from Rapid City to come to the Leonard Peltier Percival and to pray for Leonard Peltier's release. Um, I am a younger person, and to see that, um, to, to think about Leonard Peltier suffering longer than I've been alive is what got me here and drove me here. Because the pain that suffered, he has suffered longer than I have been alive. I would like to be a part to see him come out. And, and and time with his family, and that is all I have. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Dave. Uh, busy radio, coming straight. Are you still there, Roman? Hey, Dave. Roman. Yes, yes. Are you still there? Well, we got a few, yeah. and then we have a name of somebody. We have a sister, but the grandma's right here. She's been here fasting. Now she's eating a beautiful apple. Okay. Said, We're having a wonderful time here. The community is really arising. This is strangers becoming friends. 
A lot of people know each other. Friends becoming community. Uh, 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 strangers becoming friends. Friends becoming community. And a co uh, community on the move. This is the movement. And here we'd be doing more together than any of us could do on our own. Yes. Hello. Hi. Uh, my name is Joyous Rainbow, and um, I've been on Peace Walk and what I now call Journey to Peace for All Life uh, for some while. It was called to that a month before 9 11, uh, back in uh, 2001. And I've been on walking and, uh, and journeying and such things. And uh, back, uh, I was called to do this. But yes, I did uh, fast beginning October 12th, water only, and in Washington, D.C., which is really not a, a wise and sensible thing to do. But it was given to me in, uh, in a meditation um, in the sacred Black Hills uh, when I was meditating for peace. So anyway, here I am. I did not go the whole 46 days, which I wanted to, but anyway, uh, but uh, still fasting, uh, still praying for peace. I'm, I have, I'm on a peace vigil. Uh, praying, prayer vigil for peace and peace to flood humans, critters, plants, life. It has to be all of us, and we have to tell the truth. Uh, peace for all life. Tell the truth. Yes. No yes. more war. Yes. Okay. yes. Okay, hey, uh, Diamond Dave here. Oh, I, I, well, uh, here's a Spanish version. Here's my brother Felipe. He's going to speak the Spanish to the world. Take it away, Felipe. Prisionero político, y necesitamos ayuda para resolver nuestras casas. Ya llegamos aquí, bueno, dos o tres días, pero hay muchos, mucha familia aquí necesita dinero para la gasolina y para llegar otra vez para casa. Si nos hacen el favor, por favor, ahí, familia, viva, viva México, viva todos los latinos de este camino. Y a ellos van los saludos y a ver si nos pueden ayudar. Muchas gracias. Gracias. Well, hey, Roland. Hello. I have a uh, uh, new radio. This is Diamond Dave of the, uh, of the uh, Common Thread Collective uh, here in the Greenbelt Park at Greenbelt, near Greenbelt, Maryland. We'll be going, uh, we'll be going tomorrow back to uh, Washington. We're about an 11-mile ride away, so we uh, caravan over there and appear there. Today we were, uh, uh, we were for the Canadian Embassy. Uh, uh, I don't know more. And we were uh, in front of the American Indian Museum, dancing, drumming, and letting people know what's going on. So, Roman, do you have any questions? Um, yes, it seems like there's folks from all over the country who have gathered. And I'm wondering. Roman, are you there? Yes, yes. Um, can you hear any me? Any questions? Yes, I was curious if um, you're finding. Okay, I want to say oh. if people would like to, buy, would like to contribute, because yep. as you heard, people have. Uh, we need to get the bus back. We need to get the brothers and sisters back to the reservation. We're having a feast here now, thanks to thanks to uh, donations and kind. Particularly mentioned the Catholic worker who's been lending a hand, and uh, and many others. But I want to say, if people would like to send us any donations to uh, Western Union. And we're hey people, hey fellow human beings, can I hear from you? Say hello. Hello. I'm saying to the public, any donations. Number one, send to Western Union. You can send them in my name, uh, uh, Dave Whitaker, W-H-I-T-A-K-E-R. Is that all right, everybody? Yeah. Because yeah. I'm going to be here for a few days. If people have questions, will have questions about what it's all about, uh, please call me. My number is 415-240-0286. And I have the phone that I'm talking to you, Roman, uh, 
at Mutiny Radio right now. Oh, here's Sopa. No, it's not Sopa. Hey, Finch. Finch. Did you have something you wanted to say? I love you all. Here's to solidarity. Three letter smells here. We love you. Welcome home. Hi. We're here. I'm just going to say exactly what he just said. The Rainbow Lakota Alliance is strong, and we're here, and we're here for the long haul to get clemency, to get executive clemency granted by Obama. We're prepared to stay here next year in the home stretch if he doesn't do it before then, because we really believe this is the right thing to do. This is this is the president that's going to do it, and um, we love you. Uh, and that's the uh, Red, Red Dog. And she and Finch are going up to connect to the Rainbow family, is that right? Yep. Okay, well, anyway, enjoy. Uh, and, oh, he'll be, uh, he'll be my sister, Red Feather. Red Feather, we're talking to uh, back on the radio. We're talking to the world. Oh, I see you again. I'm sorry. You know, do I have any other words you say? Why I do that, I don't know. Okay, well, let's smoke. Okay, one more prayer. This is Grandmother Loudhawk, and I would like to do an ending prayer. It's a vision quest prayer, and we're on a vision. And the vision quest prayer has been said over a thousand years by people that go up on a hill and do the vision quest. It's a very, touches you in the heart. It says, it says, Grandfathers throughout the universe, hear my voice. I am asking that we all live in wellness and health, and that we all have life. And that is the vision quest prayer of the Lakota for thousands and hundreds of years. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I said to Kashlam, he's all my relations. Anyway, Ramon. Yes. Uh, do you have any questions? Uh, things like most things have here have been have been covered, and I see on the the website there's a lot of. Okay, let me get, should I give you the number again? Uh, sure, sure. And I see that there's a lot of. Four one five. Repeat Four one five two four zero zero two eight six. Yes, and I see also on the website that people can send cards and letters. And any donations to, that people would like to send, send them via via Western Union. Uh, you heard the consent that it them. And uh, uh, my, my last name is spelled W-H-I-T-A-K-E-R. Uh, yes. David Whitaker. Do you have that? Yes, yes. And also just going to okay. announce like on the on the website that there's a, a link to people to send cards and Leonard and letters to Leonard in, in prison. And it's, okay, uh, could you hear us uh, clearly? Yeah, I'm sorry? Roman. Yes, yep. I, could you hear us clearly? I, I can't understand. Because I, well, I can barely hear you. That's okay, but I can hear you now. Big way you've got a lot. Well, Roman, thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, uh, jumping in. Sure, and sure. thanks for letting us do the Common Thread Collective, at least a segment of it, on your show. Absolutely. We'll be together, doing more together than any of us could do on our own. Absolutely. And, uh, and we'll be here in the Green Belt Park about, about to, share, to share an evening meal. Yes. It's uh, about 4.30 here in San Francisco. Uh, in Maryland, Washington, D.C. All right, well, we're sending solidarity and love from San Francisco and, and travel safe. Okay, call me back after you got off the air. Will you, Roman? Okay, we will do. Okay, thank All you, right, brother. take care. Thank you, everybody. I'll see you uh, next Friday. I'll be off. But the week after that, we'll be live and starting another new season. 
for the common thread collective. Hey, Val. Hey, everybody. Here we be as you see. Still, still saying, learn to love, love to learn. This never ends. And the whole is greater than some of its parts. It's about doing more together than any of us could do on our own. Thank You're you. Here. Over and out. All right. All right take people. care. Bye. All right, so thanks to, to Diamond Dave and all the folks who, who called in uh, from uh, D.C. And if folks want to send cards and letters to, to Leonard, uh, his address uh, is listed on the whoisleonardpeltier.info, and its uh, hash uh, number is 89637-132, USP Coleman 1. P.O. Box 1033, and that's in Coleman, Florida, 33521. And again, all this information is available. Also, the links to contact the White House to donate to the, the fund and just more info on the on the background of Leonard Peltier and, of course, just one of the many political prisoners. So uh, thanks again for them for, for calling in. We'll play some music, and uh, then we will be back with uh, some more news.
welcome back to the weekly review. Uh, thanks to Diamond Dave again for calling in. That was the Grateful Dead, of course, with uh, Touch of Grey. Listening to those lyrics again, it was a little bit concerning. The dog has not been fed in years. Uh, I don't know if that is all right, uh, but, you know, that's okay. I, that's that's all right. They got by. Things worked out regardless. So I'm going to go back into the story I was uh, reading before. It's about the origins of Thanksgiving, and that kind of goes, uh, yeah, it, it goes. All right. So, um, the colonial origins of Thanksgiving, or what many natives often refer to as Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving, is not something to celebrate. While we cannot pinpoint one specific or, or original Thanksgiving celebration, President Abraham Lincoln made it a national holiday in 1863 and conceived it as a national day of Thanksgiving. Pilgrims and Indians weren't included in the tradition until 1890. The national mythos surrounding this holiday does not take into consideration the long and violent history of contact between European settlers, in this case English pilgrims, Puritans, and indigenous populations that already inhabited the land. It is in these forgotten histories that we see the history of this holiday for what it, is, what it truly is. English pilgrims unprepared to survive on the land and unfamiliar with the vegetation, waterways, and others' food sources stranded on Turtle Island who survived those early winters and ultimately engaged in a brutal campaign of, coloni of colonialism and genocidal activity. It is important that we think clearly and honestly about how the uh, beatified pilgrims saw the natives. First time Plymouth County Governor William Bradford said the natives were quote-unquote savage people who are cruel, barbarous, and most treacherous. Clearly not the people you would like to feast with, yet our national narrative surrounding this holiday celebrates the first Thanksgiving as a moment of harmonious bridge building. This is clearly not the case, especially when we learn about the Pequot Massacre of 1637. This is just one in a multitude of genocidal tactics employed against the indigenous peoples of the land since white Europe arrived in 1492. Of this event, uh, Governor Bradford said, uh, those that escaped the fire were, were, uh, were slain with the sword, some hewed to pieces, others run through with their rapiers so that they were quickly dispatched and very few escaped. It was conceived they thus destroyed about 400 at this time. It was a fearful sight to see them thus frying in the fire. Horrible was the stink and scent thereof, but the victory seemed a sweet sacrifice, and they gave the prayers thereof to God, who had wrought so wonderfully for them. The occupiers celebrated the genocide and thanked God for the victory. And immediately, Following the Pequot Massacre of 1637, the occupiers worked diligently to whitewash history. The name of the tribe was erased from the map. The Pequot River became the, the Thames, and the geographic space uh, the Pequot inhabited became known as New London. It is as if they never existed. The whitewashing and erasure of indigenous histories is not unique to this holiday, but it is perhaps one of the most ironic instances of indigenous mass murder in service of white European colonial expansion. The idea that we celebrate the notion that indigenous peoples and the white Europeans occupiers who literally sought their extinction were able to put their differences to the side long enough to sit down and feast upon food in relative peace and harmony is deeply problematic. Even more so is the idea that it was the white European occupiers who had to teach and demonstrate civility to these barbarous savages. With the Pequot massacre in mind, it is clear which group in the Thanksgiving picture were the real barbarous savages and who were the ones practicing civility. 
the language and the rhetoric surrounding the holiday erase the true history of settler colonialism. The Pequot Massacre is just one mere instance in the long history of evil acts that began with the white European occupation of Turtle Island. This is also not the first time we have seen the descendants of the occupiers attempt to create a new civic identity by whitewashing history and silencing indigenous voices while erasing indigenous bodies. We see this unfolding in Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Choctaw for red people, where non-native occupiers see no shame in calling themselves uh, Sooners, those who stole land prior to the Oklahoma land runs, a territory that was, by treaty, set aside specifically and solely for tribal communities so long as the rivers run and the sun shines. However, indigenous peoples and our co-conspirators cannot stand idly by as those who continue to employ colonial and ultimately genocidal tactics against our communities rewrite and revise history to justify both their actions and the actions of their ancestors. We must thoughtfully and intentionally intervene because white boomer sooner, um, uh, and they have another word, uh, name of football team, which is not spelled out, and uh, and Thanksgiving uh, may seem inconsequential to some. The historical context that, that gave rise to these terms and celebrations contribute to real-life consequences that still impact Native people in this country, as we uh, heard on the from the, the phone call. Uh, Native women are the group most likely to be sexually assaulted in their lifetime, with low estimates suggesting one in three in her lifetime. Upwards of 80% or more of these cases are perpetuated by non-Native males. There are 2,000 reports of missing and and murdered indigenous women from Turtle Island and suicide in native communities far surpasses the national average for every age group. Natives have the shortest lifespan of any group living in the United States, and this rate is even lower than those living on reservations. Historical or intergenerational trauma is literally embedded in native DNA, and many of our parents and grandparents were stolen from their families and forced into boarding schools that had expressed that had the expressed mission to civilize the savage and kill the Indian but save the man. Physical torture, sexual assault, murder, public shaming, and sealing the culture of Native children ac accomplish this. Psychological studies have demonstrated that Native mascots negatively affect the psyche and well-being of Native youth, and many of these children have a difficult time making it through K-12, to never mind college. Further, Native people are virtually helpless when a non-Native perpetrates a crime on native land. The victims have no jurisdiction over non-natives, and the only way they could ever achieve justice is if, it, is if the already overlooked federal government decides the case is worth pursuing. The silencing of native voices has not only happened historically, but con also continues today. Whitewashing history, visiting his revisiting history, and developing rhetoric that celebrates the creation of a new civic identity for European occupiers, these all contribute to the oppression of indigenous peoples and tribal communities. The stories like those told about the Indians and pilgrims at Thanksgiving ingrain a false sense of truth into the mind of the general public. These stories tell the populace that everything is okay, and in fact, the quote-unquote Indians owe a lot to the pilgrims. A closer examination and orientation with actual history, however, will negate these ideas and will enable the public to see how, and more importantly, why these stories, Columbus, Thanksgiving, Boomer, Sooner, are told the way they are. These stories are extensions of colonialism and are, in fact, genocidal tactics. By erasing and replacing these stories from, the thanks from those of Thanksgiving, the occupier continues to remain complicit in genocide. So, enjoy that turkey, but remember that you are doing so in a land that was stolen. Honor the dead by remembering their stories and their sacrifice. Again, this was written by Ashley 
Nicole McCray. This can be found at counterpunch.org as well as on the facebook.com slash weekly rev. <sighs> okay. So uh, I'm going to see if I can fit in some more stories before the end here. We're going to go until 2 o'clock. Uh, Global Val and Women's Magazine is off this week as well as next week as well as uh, the Common Thread Collective. Um, we plan some older shows, though, after that, so so stay tuned. So this comes from CBC News, and earlier on the program, and on previous programs, we've talked about Nestle and why they're a really terrible company, and you should not buy any of their products, and they, they sell a lot of stuff. They sell water. They sell candy. Um, but looking at their history, they supported the Vietnam War. They helped fund the Vietnam War, and they uh, were bottling up in Northern California, uh, further Northern California, and uh, their permits had expired in 1988, and they still were bottling water, so that was illegal, and they were selling it to other states. So that's enough of a reason to not support Nestle. But we got more reasons not to. So this, uh, another article, uh, Nestle admits slavery and coercion used in catching its seafood. Global audit by the food giant finds abuse of workers who catch seafood from Thailand. And this was written by Martha Mendoza from the AP, and this came out on November 23rd. Uh, impoverished migrant workers in Thailand are sold or lured by false promises and forced to catch and process fish that ends up in global food giant Nestle SA's supply chains. The unusual disclosure comes from Geneva-based Nestle SA itself, which, in an act of self-policing, planned to announce the conclusions of its year-long internal investigation on Monday. The study found virtually all U.S. and European companies buying seafood from Thailand are exposed to the same risks of abuse in their supply chains. Nestle SA among the biggest food companies in the world launched the investigation in December 2014 after reports from news outlets and non-governmental organizations tied brutal and largely unregulated working conditions to, for their shrimp, prawns, and Purina-based uh, brand Pet Foods. Its findings echo those of the Associated Press and reports this year on slavery in the seafood industry that have resulted in the rescue of more than 2,000 fishermen. Uh, the laborers come from Thailand's much poorer neighbors, Myanmar and Cambodia. Brokers illegally charge them fees to get jobs, trapping them into working on fishing vessels and at ports, mills, and seafood farms in Thailand to pay back more money than they can ever earn. Sometimes the net is too heavy and workers get pulled into the water and just disappear. When someone dies, he gets thrown into the water, one Burmese worker told the nonprofit organization Verite, commissioned by Nestle. I've been working on this boat for 10 years. I have no savings. I am barely surviving, said another. Life is very difficult here. Nestle said it would post the reports online, as well as a detailed year-long solution strategy throughout 2016 as part of ongoing efforts to protect workers. It has promised to impose new requirements on all potential suppliers and train boat owners and captains about human rights, possibly with a demonstration vessel and rewards for altering their practices. It also plans to bring in outside auditors and assign a high-level Nestle manager to make sure change is underway. As we've said consistently, forced labor and human rights abuses have no place in our supply chain, uh, Magdi Batalo, Nestle's executive vice president in charge of operations, said in a written statement. Nestle believes that by working with suppliers, we can make a positive difference 
to the sourcing of ingredients. Nestle is not a major purchaser of seafood in Southeast Asia, but does some business in Thailand, primarily for its Purina brand Fancy Feast cat food. So don't buy that. For its study, Verite interviewed more than 100 people, including about 80 workers from Myanmar and Cambodia, as well as boat owners, shrimp farm owners, and site supervisors, and representatives of Nestle's suppliers. They visited fish ports and fish meal packing plants, shrimp plants, and docked fishing boats, all in Thailand. Boat captains and managers, along with workers, confirmed violence and danger in the Thai seafood sector, a booming industry which exports $7 billion of products a year, although managers said workers sometimes got hurt because they were drunk and fighting. Boat, captain, boat captains rarely checked ages of workers, and Verite found underage workers forced to fish. Workers said they... Said they labor without rest. Their food and water are minimal. Outside contact is cut off, and they are given fake identities to hide that they are working illegally. Generally, the workers studied by Verite were catching and processing fish into fish meal fed to shrimp and prawns. But the Amherst, Massachusetts-based group said many of the problems they observed are systematic and not unique to Nestle. Migrant workers throughout Thailand's seafood sector... <coughs> are vulnerable, vulnerable to abuses as they are recruited, hired, and employed, said Verite. Monday's disclosure is rare. While multinational companies in industries from garments to electronics say they investigate allegations of abuse in their supply chains, they rarely share negative findings. It's unusual and exemplary, said Mark Lagon, president of the nonprofit Freedom House, a Washington-based anti-trafficking organization. The propensity of the PR and legal departments of companies is not to fess up, not to even say that they are carefully looking into a problem for fear that they will get hit with lawsuits, he said. In fact, Nestle is already being sued. In August, pet food Pet food buyers filed a class action lawsuit alleging Fancy Feast cat food was the product of slave labor associated with Thai Union Frozen Products, a major distributor. It's one of several lawsuits filed in recent months against major U.S. Re retailers importing seafood from Thailand. Some of the litigation cities, the rep reports from the AP, which trafficked, which tracked Slave-caught fish to the supply chains of giant food sellers such as Walmart, Cisco, and Kroger, and popular brands of Kend of canned pet food such as Fancy Feast, Meow Mix, and Iams can turn up as calamari at fine restaurants, as imitation crab in a sushi roll, or packages of frozen snapper relabeled with store brands that land on dinner tables. The U.S. companies have all said they strongly condemn labor abuse and are taking steps to prevent it. Nestle promises to publicly report its progress each year. And this comes from the Canadian press. So there is, yeah. Um, okay. So, oh gosh. All right. I'm um, going to go into uh, the story I mentioned earlier, which there's a shooting just this afternoon in Colorado Springs um, at a Planned Parenthood. Uh, and this is updated. At least three officers, multiple civilians injured an ongoing active shooter situation at Planned Parenthood. And this was last updated at 11.55 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, so that would have been 10.55 uh, a.m. here. And this is written by Jesse Paul, Jordan Staffen, and John Ingold. And this comes from uh, the Denver Post. <sighs> 
At least three police officers and multiple civilians have been injured in an ongoing active shooter situation at or near a Colorado Springs branch of, of Planned Parenthood on Friday afternoon. We have confirmed that we have three officers that are injured. There are unknown number of civilians who have been injured, Police Lieutenant Catherine Buckley said. The situation is still unstable and the shooter is not contained. At 2.15, the police department reported on Twitter the officers were encountering gunfire from a suspect. The city's fire department tweeted about the suspect about about 11.45 a.m. Buckley said the original call for service was at the Planned Parenthood address. The branch is located at 38... For, uh, 30, 3480 Centennial Boulevard, just north of West Fillmore Street. Joan uh, Motolinia said his sister is in the clinic, and he talked to her by phone at about 1.30 p.m. She was in the clinic for an appointment and was hiding under a table and was only able to talk briefly. She was very afraid, he said. While she was talking, he could hear gunfire in the background, and about two, and after about two minutes, his sister hung, on up, hung, on up, hung up on him. She was telling me to take care of her babies, he said. I heard some shots, so people were in there shooting for sure. At a news conference at about 1.30 on Friday afternoon, Buckley said police cannot confirm where the shooter is located and said the situation is very active. She said officers don't know yet for sure whether there was a single shooter or multiple gunmen. She said police have brought all of our resources to bear to the situation. Earlier, Colorado Springs Police, Commission, police Commander Kirk Wilson told media at the scene that police were still trying to get officers to the shooting area. We haven't been able to get in the scene yet, he said. Three victims from the incident have been taken to Penrose Hospital in Colorado Springs for treatment, hospital spokeswoman Jill Woodford said she did not know the patient's condition or whether they were police officers or civilians. Kathy Alderman, vice president of public affairs for Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains, said the situation was was fluid and the organization had little information to go on. We're monitoring the situation like everyone else, she said. Obviously, the safety of our patients and staff is our greatest concern. We're hoping for the best. Alderman was not sure yet if everyone associated with the clinic was safe. We believe people are sheltered in place, but we don't know if that for sure yet, she said. A photo from the scene showed officers in the area hiding behind their vehicles with their weapons drawn. SWAT officers have been called to the scene. Colorado Springs police have shut down Centennial Boulevard between Garden of the Gods Road and Fillmore Street. Some businesses in the area are being evacuated. Patrons and workers at nearby shopping center have been told to, sh told to shelter in place. We are looking out for the. We were looking out the window, and we had an officer wave ba us back inside. Said Bridget Wolf, who works at the Jun Japanese restaurant next door. They have everything blocked off. Wolf said that there are roughly a dozen police vehicles at the scene. She said officers have guns drawn and are facing the Planned Parenthood branch. An employee who answered the, the phone at a nearby King Supers said a few dozen customers were locked inside. Uh, under police orders, but she had not seen the shooter or any other violence across the parking lot from the Planned Parenthood building. Everybody here is safe, she said, declining to give her name. That's all I know, but I'm in the back right now. This is a developing story that will be updated as more information becomes available. Uh, staff writers Elizabeth Hernandez and Joey Bunch contributed to this report. <sighs> so that's pretty shitty, and most of the news on here is, and that's happening right now so uh there's a few minutes left and i'm going to go into another story which seems to be a theme of everything which is violence that's been committed and uh this is from the the dallas mayor and this is from color lines dallas mayor more fearful of large gatherings of white men than syrian refugees 
Uh, Mike Rawlings attacked Islamophobic hysteria and hypocrisy on MSNBC. Dallas, Texas Mayor Mike Rawlings stood in opposition to other Southern politicians, including his governor, Greg Abbott, when he said that he was more afraid of white men with guns than Syrian refugees. And all the stories I've been reporting today, those are the ones causing the violence, uh, whether it be from Thanksgiving, whether it be the police in Chicago, the police in and the white supremacists in uh, Minneapolis, and then now outside the Planned Parenthood in Colorado Springs. Uh, while speaking on MSNBC this past Saturday, November 21st, and they have a link to the video, Rawlings said that he would welcome Syrian refugees to Dallas. When asked about the growing fear over Syrian refugee and possible ties to ISIS, Rawlings responded, I am more fearful of large gatherings of white men that come into schools, theaters, and shoot people up, but we don't isolate young white men on this issue. Rawlings also criticized the tendency to conflate ISIS with Muslims in general, asserting that the group does not represent Islam. We want to get rid of ISIS. Uh, we all agree that ISIS wants us to be divided on the issue. ISIS wants us to demonize these refugees, wants us to alienate these children. ISIS is no more Islamic than the Nazi senior staff was Christian, and we have got to differen differentiate between them. <sighs> So, there, there you have it. So with that, I think it's time to wrap up this program. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for the folks for calling in. And uh, oh, uh, I was looking for some music to play towards the end. I don't think any of the ones I had selected are really too fitting, so I'm going to look here a little bit more um, to... Uh, to find some, and uh, I think we're gonna actually do some some Smiths for this. Uh, uh, a rush and a push in the land is ours. Actually, uh, we're gonna do so. And uh, I have a friend Joe Yoga out in New York who's a musician, and he covered it recently. So I'm gonna look that up. It might take a moment uh, while I find it. So so bear with me. Uh, you've been listening to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. There's programs here seven days a week. There's there's music, there's live comedy, there's politics, there's cannabis, there's all sorts of events happening here. So definitely come by. I am definitely exhausted from just reading the news, um, but I am very happy to be able to do that, and I will every every week as as long as I am able, because I feel like it's the it's the least we can do, because not everyone has the opportunity to speak, and the least we can do is is talk about uh, folks who have have been through it, and uh, can't really add much much more to that. So I'm gonna go ahead and play. Uh, my friend Joe's song. It's nice to be able to play music by folks that I know and give them some uh, signal boost, as it were. And this is a cover of the Smith song, A Rush and a Push, and uh, The Land is Ours. So I'm going to go back to the beginning here. And uh, everyone have a, have, a, have a good week, and we'll get this started momentarily. And we are, it should be going any moment now. And hold on, one moment. And here we go. I am the ghost of troubled Joe. 
hung by his pretty white neck some 18 months ago. I traveled to a mystical time zone and I missed my bed and I soon came home. Oh, hello. They said there's too much caffeine in your bloodstream And the lack of real spice in your life I said, leave me alone, cause I'm alright, Dad Surprised to still be on my own Oh, but don't mention love I'd hate the strain of the pain again Rush and push in the land Showcase featuring and paying local comics with the take from the door. Free wine is always provided for the audience for a donation of $10 that gets equally divided among comedians and the station because comics should be paid for their art. Hell, go buy a comic a drink just because, just because they're poor and funny. The most badass open mic for over two and a half years. Pay.